The Battle for Ithaca Odysseus and Telemachus were ready to set their plans into action. Just before Eumaeus returned to his cottage, Odysseus resumed the form of a beggarman, and Telemachus slipped away into the night. The following morning dawned cool and clear, and Odysseus felt a renewed vigor coursing through his veins. He longed to appear in his battle garb. The strong and mighty Odysseus returned from the dead to reclaim his palace, but there was too much at stake to set a wrong foot and he knew the plans he had fixed with Telemachus must be followed to the tiniest detail. Eumaeus accompanied Odysseus to the palace to see if there was any work available for a willing but poverty-stricken beggar. He was greeted first by the rude and arrogant Antinous, the leader of Penelope's suitors, who had long considered himself the rightful heir to Odysseus's position within Ithaca. He gazed scathingly at Odysseus as he entered the room where the suitors lolled about on cushions, calling out to the overburdened servants for refreshment and ever greater beasts of food. Who dares to trouble us, he said lazily. Odysseus introduced himself as a poor traveler, down on his luck after a long voyage in which his crew members had been struck down by Poseidon. To test them, Odysseus begged them for alms, but he was met by a barrage of rotten fruit, after which several of the younger suitors took turns beating him. Bruised and angry, Odysseus stood his ground, requesting menial work of any nature, and it was then that the young local beggar Iris stepped into the fray. Resenting the competition offered by Odysseus, he challenged him to a fight at which the lazy suitors leapt to their feet, roaring at the impending carnage. For Odysseus had taken the form of an old man, and Iris was young and strong, a beggar only because of his slothful nature. But the roars turned to silence as Odysseus lifted his robes to show legs as muscular and powerful as the greatest of warriors, and a prowess with a sword that belonged only to the master of the house. He slayed Eros with one fell of his sword. Odysseus was cheered not by the suitors who suspected a rival for the attention of Penelope, and they cast him out, kicking and beating him until he howled with pain and restrained anger. He could not show his true colors yet. The time was not ripe for battle. Odysseus made his way from the waiting rooms into the kitchen where word of his ill treatment reached Penelope. Knowing well that gods often traveled in disguise, she sent a message that she wished the sailor to be fed and made comfortable for the night. Penelope herself wished to speak to him, for a traveler might have word of the long-lost Odysseus, and she yearned for news of him. But Odysseus claimed to be too weak to see the mistress of the house, and it was agreed that they would speak later that evening. And so it was that Odysseus slipped from his bed in the kitchen and met with his son in the great hall. Quietly, they removed the armor and weapons that the suitors had idly laid to one side, piling them outside the palace gates where they were snatched away by village boys. And now, in the darkened hall, Odysseus agreed to see Penelope, who felt a surge of excitement at their meeting which startled and concerned her. Odysseus had been gone too long. She was losing control. 
They met by candlelight, and safe in his disguise, Odysseus wove for Penelope a fanciful story about his travels, which had little in common with the true nature of his voyages, but left her with no doubt that the brave Odysseus was on his way home, and would soon return to set things right. And then Odysseus heard from Penelope the trials of the last twenty years, and hung his head in shame at the thought of his many years with Calypso, and the time lost through the greed and indolence of this and the time lost through the greed and indolence of his men. Penelope told of the suitors who had been first quietened by her insistence that the oracle had promised Odysseus's return. But as the years had passed, they had grown insolent and arrogant, demanding her attentions, her hand in marriage. She had fought them off, she said, by claiming to weave the cloth that would shroud Laertes upon his death. And each night she had spent many hours unpicking the day's work, and then when this trick had been discovered, she could delay her decision no longer, and had feigned illness for many months. The next day was the Feast of Apollo, and it was on this day that she had agreed to choose a husband. Penelope wept with misery, her fair face more beautiful with age and distress. Odysseus longed to take her in his arms, to warm her body and to ease her pain, but he held himself back from her, knowing that he must use his anger to feed his resolve, to rid his home of these suitors once and for all. Penelope was grateful for the reassurance and calm understanding of this stranger, and she urged him to take a chamber for the night, sending the aged nurse Euryclea to bathe his feet and weary legs. Euryclea had been Odysseus's Odysseus's own nurse as a child, and when she saw his familiar scar received in a youthful skirmish with a wild boar, she cried out. Odysseus grabbed her throat. Speak not, wise woman, he whispered harshly. All will be set right at the dawn of the feast. Euryclea nodded, her eyes bulging with fear and concern, and she gathered her skirts around her, heading for the servants' quarters. The next day was the feast, and the household was abuzz with activity and preparations. Odysseus took a seat amongst the suitors strategically placed by the door, but he was jeered at and heckled until he was forced to move to a small stool. Penelope eventually appeared in their midst. Then Agalus gave her an ultimatum. Today, a choice must be made. Penelope turned pleadingly to Telemachus, but he nodded his grudging consent, and she announced that a competition would take place. With that, she fled to a table and shut her eyes in despair. Telemachus took over producing Odysseus's great bow, and gently explained that his mother could not and gently explained that his mother could only consider marriage to someone the equal of his father. Someone who could string the bow and shoot an arrow through the rings of twelve axes set in a row. And one by one, the suitors failed to bend the stiff bow, and disgruntled, cast it aside, and sat sullenly along the walls of the hall. So it was that the beggarman was the only remaining man, and he begged a chance to test his strength against the bow. He was taunted and insults fired at him, but he stood his ground, and with the permission of Penelope, who nodded a sympathetic assent, he took the bow. Like a man born to the act, he deftly wired the bow, and taking an arrow, he fired it straight through the rings of the axes. The room was silent. 
Telemachus rose and strode across to stand by his father. The die is cast, said Odysseus, thrusting aside his disguise. And another target presents itself. Prepare to pay for your treachery. With that, he lifted his arrow and shot Antinous clear through the neck. The suitors searched with amazement for their arms and armor, and finding them gone, tried to make do with the short daggers in their belts. They launched themselves at Odysseus and his son, but the two great men fought valiantly, sending arrow after arrow, spear after spear, to their fatal mark. And when Odysseus and Telemachus grew tired, Athene flew across them in the shape of a swallow and filled them with a surge of energy, a new life that saw them through the battle to victory. The battle won the suitors dead. The household was now scourged for those who had befriended the suitors. Maids who had shared their beds, boarders and shepherds who had made available the stocks and stores of Odysseus's palace. And these maids and men were beheaded and burnt in a fire that was seen for many miles. Damn. Finally, Odysseus could pause and greet properly his long-lost wife, who sat wearily by his side, hardly daring to believe that he had returned. And yet, one look at his time and journey-lined face told her it was all true, and she was overwhelmed once again by her love for this brave man who was so long apart from her. With tears of joy, they clutched one another, and their union was sweet and tender. And soon afterwards came Laertes, the veil of madness lifted by news of his son's return. The courageous Odysseus was home at last, his cunning a match for all that the fates had set in his path. There would be more skirmishes before he could call Ithaca his own once more, and Poseidon must be appeased before he could live fearlessly surrounded by that great god's kingdom. But in time, all was undertaken. Some say that Odysseus lived to a ripe old age, dying eventually and suitably on the sea. Others say that he died at the hand of his own son, Telegonus, by the enchantress Circe. All agree that Odysseus was beloved by his subjects, the tales of his journey becoming the food for legends which spread around the world. The end. <laughs>